0: we have met you today you're a road warrior you're simply catching a little bit of this radio program thanks so much for joining us tomorrow by the way friday at the best of times we turn the phones over to you but it will be the final time for me the brand new evan bray show debuts on monday so tomorrow we just go wall-to-wall open phones we'll talk about whatever is on your mind and i would love to hear your story of your relationship with this radio show over 25 plus years. I am even by my standards. Like I, okay. Somebody said, how are you feeling? And of course, emotionally you start to get wrapped up because I'm way more engaged with so many of you um, because we've been together all these years. And some of you have said the nicest things I've ever read. And I think I'm reading about somebody else. Um, They're wonderful. You're, you're kind. So talk about that tomorrow. Well, I laughed about this. Uh, Those of us who are political weenies, and I do include you in that list, yeah, you, uh, because we talk a lot of politics on this radio show, especially of the Saskatchewan variety. I was not alive when the Moss Bank debate took place. It was a debate in the small town of Moss Bank in the spring of 1957 uh, in case you were keeping careful track. It was the 20th of May. The farmers had put the crop in. The radio stations broadcast a political debate. T.C. Tommy Douglas, the premier of Saskatchewan, he had been since 1944. He would stay as premier another three years until 1960. Uh, The other combatant was the man who would become the premier In 1964, Ross Thatcher, liberal. Thatcher and Douglas had both been CCF members of Parliament. The CCF, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, was the forerunner of the NDP. In the early 60s, the CCF merged with the Canadian Labour Congress and became the new Democratic Party. And for the NDP, some of them are still bugged because... They're not so new, but that's the origins of the NDP. So the CCF is that term you hear pre-1961-62 NDP since then. So how does Thatcher go from being a CCF MP to a liberal? Tommy Douglas, who had been the longest serving, still the longest serving premier of Saskatchewan, how do these two end up in a debate that was broadcast around the province? Many who were there, and the transcripts and uh, all else, would even with the benefit of 66 years of history, uh, suggest Tommy Douglas didn't lose many debates, but he was bested that night by Ross Thatcher, who was no uh, wilting lily in terms of a political figure. Others still believe Tommy Douglas won the debate. Well, Malcolm Buchholz, a researcher and author, Sat down, revisited, read the transcript, uh, talked, uh, and wrote extensively about the Saskatchewan of that time and who Douglas and Thatcher were. It's a very engaging new book, Thatcher versus Douglas The CCF, the Liberals, and the Moss Bank Debate of 1957. And no small coincidence, where does Malcolm Buchholtz live? Moss Bank. Malcolm, I hope you're well, and thank you so much for taking our call.
1: And thank you, Sean, for having me on the show. I appreciate it.
0: I, I enjoyed your your canvas. You did a good bio on each of these uh, legendary Saskatchewan political figures. Why the Mossbank debate, and why now all these years later?
1: Well, it actually goes back to a decision that my wife and I made in uh, early 2020. We moved to Moss Bank from Regina, and... Prior to that, we had made many, many trips to see family in Assiniboia, and of course we drove many times past the turnoff leading into Mossbank. And I was always aware that there was a sign that said, home of the great debate, but it never really resonated with me until we moved there, and I started to realize, John, that this pivotal moment in political history was fading away into the mists of time. Um, And I decided that I had to do something to make sure it didn't get forgotten about and hence the book
0: as you began to research it Malcolm is it as as a significant part of Saskatchewan history as they thought at the time
2: um
1: no i think at the time it was just um mr douglas had been um poked and prodded by mr thatcher and they decided to have a debate uh it's only now in hindsight that we recognize that, yeah, it really was a great debate, a pivotal turning point in not only Saskatchewan politics, but the way politics in general is done.
0: Malcolm Malcolm Buchholz is here. The brand new book, Thatcher versus Douglas, the CCF, the Liberals, and the Moss Bank debate of 1957. Okay, so let's start. How do you go about seeing that sign, home of the great debate? How do you start to pull together the material?
1: Well, the first thing we did is we um, we contacted the Saskatchewan Archives. And as it turns out, in the aftermath of the debate, um, Mr. Douglas himself actually sat down at his typewriter, and he, um, he codified everything, and that is on file for anybody to get from the archives. And once I got that and started to read it, um, that's when it dawned on me that... This had not been a slam dunk for T.C. Douglas, Um, and that's what really drove me then to dig deeper and and put together the book.
0: So these two characters, both very strong figures, I mean, you know, nobody ever uh, accused either Tommy Douglas or Ross Thatcher of walking away from an issue. Uh, They both begin in their political careers as CCF members of parliament. Was there any love lost between them by this time?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't think they hated each other. Um, Mr. Thatcher had gone to Ottawa, as you say, as a CCF member of Parliament, but very quickly became disenfranchised with the uh, lack of business acumen, if you will, of the CCF party. And so, knowing that there was an election coming in 1957. Um, he wanted to switch. He, he just, he could not abide by, the, the, like I say, the lack of business acumen um, by the leaders of the CCF. And so Louis Salera, who was prime minister at the time, said, Mr. Thatcher, cross the floor, come and join the liberals. And so then he had to get himself reelected on a liberal ticket somewhere in Saskatchewan. And so how do you do that? Well, he needed to get the media on his side. He needed to make a splash. And that's when he started needling and poking and prodding at T.C. Douglas, criticizing him about the way the province was being run, uh, criticizing him for the for the crown corporations. Now, T.C. Douglas, as I point out in the book, he was a fighter as a young man. He was a boxer and a good one. And one of his favorite expressions, which he took from Scottish folklore, um, reads to the effect, uh, I am not hurt but I will lie down and bleed a while, but I will rise and fight again. <laughs> right. That really characterizes the man. He was a fighter, and he said to Mr. Thatcher, game on, let's go.
0: So there's, a, there's an election later, 1960 is the last election Tommy Douglas uh, contests provincially, Uh, In Saskatchewan, uh, he's reelected, then steps down, hands the reins to Woodrow Lloyd, who is defeated in 64 by the same Ross Thatcher, who becomes the liberal premier of the province. So what was the the setup for the debate? I mean, you you talk about Thatcher and his movement over to the liberals um, and his needling of Tommy Douglas. Were there certain issues that emerged at that point in 1957?
1: Mr. Thatcher was of the opinion Based on what I've gleaned from the research, he was of the opinion that a lot of these crown corporations were losing money. And in fact, they were. I, I spent days in the legislative library looking at the old financial statements. And sure, these things were losing money. Um, and so Mr. Thatcher was very correct in his assertion that perhaps there had been errors made in starting them to begin with. And um, but, you know, you've got to put yourself also in the shoes of T.C. Douglas. As the economy was coming out of World War II, the last thing Mr. Douglas wanted was for the economy to fall into recession or depression, and so he felt he had to do something. He had to ensure that the province uh, had two solid legs to stand on, and he started um, building up the civil service with very educated people, and uh, they started st- st- founding these crown corporations to try to get the economy firing on all cylinders.
0: And, of course, his incursion into government and business, uh, some of them were very successful. I mean, the utility companies, uh, even the Saskatchewan bus company that became STC. Others, like a boot factory, a box factory. I mean, there were a few other ventures didn't do so well.
1: Exactly. And so that's what I point out in the book. Um, He really... I guess you could almost say they went at this with almost reckless abandon. And what they failed to recognize was post-World War II, the United States was largely unscathed, aside from Pearl Harbor. So the U.S. economy was strong, and manufacturers in the U.S. wasted little time in starting to make boots, blankets, boxes, and what have you. And so here was poor Saskatchewan, no prior experience making these things, and it just didn't work. And that was Mr. Thatcher's entire point when he when he criticized TC Douglas, and that is really what culminated then in the debate.
0: Malcolm Buchholz is with us a brand new book called Thatcher versus Douglas, The CCF, the Liberals, and the Moss Bank Debate of 1957. Malcolm, can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Yes, I can, John. So when you go back and revisit sixty-six years later, Many of Ross Thatcher's uh, fans and supporters saw that as his turning point, and he pretty handily defeated Tommy Douglas. Others uh, said not so fast. They thought Douglas acquitted himself well. Well, Malcolm revisited that debate in 1957, so who does he think won? Next on 650 CKOM and 980 CJME. I'm John Gore, a brand new book that really digs deep into a particularly important political event in Saskatchewan, the Great Moss Bank Debate, 1957, and we're with Malcolm Buchholz, who coincidentally lives in Moss Bank. Thatcher versus Douglas, the CCF, the Liberals, and the Moss Bank Debate of 1957, And uh, Malcolm's book does a great job, too, at drilling down on the biographical background of who was Tommy Douglas, the longtime Saskatchewan premier, who was Ross Thatcher, the man who had been a CCF member of parliament, became a liberal, became the liberal premier after uh, Tommy Douglas handed things over to Woodrow Lloyd in the early 60s. Uh, We missed Malcolm's initial book launch. That was uh, this past weekend. Usually I love to get authors on before that. My apologies. But we should tell you where you can get the book. It's a very engaging read. Malcolm, best place for people to get the book?
1: Well, of course, Amazon. Um, but if you want to uh, shop local, uh, it is available also through Sask Books in Regina.
0: All right. Good stuff. So I'm curious. I mean, I've never I think I think I heard when i was a student and this would be years and years ago an excerpt of the debate that somebody you know gone from wax or wire onto a tape recording and it was a good old school you know town hall debate i remember very little of it uh depending on how people view the political world thatcher wiped the floor with douglas uh douglas acquitted himself very well what was your sense 66 years later was there a clear-cut winner
1: in my opinion john and as i talk about in the book I think Mr. Douglas lost. Um, He came to the debate armed with profit loss depreciation figures to defend his crown corporations. Now put yourself in the shoes of the average uh, media reporter on the floor, the average person, the average farmer. I don't think they really understood these facts and figures. Uh, Mr. Thatcher was a little bit more polished, a little more eloquent. uh, And at one point, you know, T.C. Douglas, the great orator, he veered horribly into the weeds and he began accusing or insinuating that Mr. Thatcher perhaps was in cahoots with the RCMP and spying on him. Oh, really? It was it. Was, it yeah. He, he really uh, drove it into the ditch. Now, the media at the time, in my opinion, was very gracious. And they said, well, there really wasn't a winner, there wasn't really a loser, and they kind of left it at that. But no, he lost fair and square, John, he really did. That was and, interesting,
0: because I did hear that something Thatcher had obviously done, or maybe it was just the tempo of the debate, got under Tommy Douglas' skin, which caused them then to go personal.
1: Yes, it did. And, and as I say in the book, um, you know, the great Tommy Douglas was rattled. And that was uncharacteristic. I mean, this is the man that could wow a crowd with the Mouseland fable and the cream separator story. Uh, This is a man who could bring people to tears with his emotional uh, orations. He just wasn't there that night. And uh, I'm going to take you back to, you know, one of his favorite Scottish ballads. I'm hurt, but I'm not slaying. I will rise and fight again. And I think he knew at some visceral level that he had lost. And I think he decided post-debate he was going to rise and fight again and i think he dug deep and what he delivered was medicare and that was the crowning glory and his exit then from provincial politics
0: it's a good point because when he left to go to the federal ndp left woodrow lloyd really with implementing medicare and for those who uh, didn't like the way it was done uh, lloyd was the bad guy for those who loved medicare it was Tommy Douglas's. So nobody ever calls Woodrow Lloyd the father of Medicare, do they? No. And what's interesting
1: is the um, the history books basically will say Tommy Douglas. Oh, he was a great man, perhaps the greatest ever. And he was the father of Medicare. Um, all true. But that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to go back and look at the man, what shaped him, what drove him to start the crown corporations, uh, the, the 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 fight, the fighter in him and uh and that's really what I wanted to highlight in the book. Um, he really was a, a great politician, but that debate, I think, was the pinnacle, uh, the, the end of it. Because once he went into federal politics in Ottawa, he was up against, you know, Pierre Trudeau with charisma, sex appeal, and he just couldn't compete. And by 1971, you know, Tommy Douglas was, he was effectively out of politics and gone.
0: Good point. Malcolm Buchholz, the brand new book. He's a, an author, a researcher who lives in Mossbank, by the way. Thatcher versus Douglas, the CCF, the Liberals, and the Mossbank Debate of 1957. Uh, online at Amazon, locally. What's the bookstore that we should look to for this, Malcolm? Oh, you can go to uh,
1: Penny University Books on uh, 13th Avenue, or you can get it also from Sask Books.
0: Fantastic. Well, all the best on this. And this is a great time of year when a book launch happens, because, of course, for political junkies, Malcolm, as you know, they can't read enough great books on Saskatchewan politics. And here's one.
1: And, yeah, to your point, John, uh, anybody with even a passing interest in in politics of the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, this will
0: educate you and and really enlighten you. Malcolm, thank you so much. Take care and uh, all the best in future.
1: And, John, thank you for all you've done. And I'm going to miss you. And all the best
0: in the future. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I am going to miss every one of you. Oh, tomorrow is uh, the last show. And uh, I guess I better compose my thoughts. Uh, I've been uh, out and about meeting a lot of people and friends uh, this uh, last couple of weeks. And gosh, I am honored by all of you. Coming up, some more of the stories that have got you and Saskatchewan talking today on 980-CJME and 650-CKOM. On Gormley. Good to have you here. And uh, thanks for checking in wherever you have found us on this day. Uh, if I don't reply to each of you on the texts, uh, I'm trying, but uh know that I've read what you passed along, and uh I am just humbled beyond words by you. Thank you so much. And today isn't even the last day. This, in my campaign, for people to use the word penultimate properly, this is the penultimate show. Tomorrow is the ultimate, the final show. So, um, Interesting piece this week. You know, we by this time in the week, uh, Thursday usually, we're doing a quick canvas on the week that was. And gosh, there was a lot of stuff on the go this week, as there seems to be every five-day cycle, Monday to Friday. Uh, Among them was uh, two days ago, the federal government with its fall economic update. So it was observed by some in the world of uh, finance, and the world of the markets, that Krisha Freeland was gamely trying, sort of doing this idea that everything is okay. Nothing to see here in terms of worry. The deficit will be $40 billion this year, but... Budget will balance itself. No, they, sorry, that was her boss. Um, but it was projected to be forty point one billion just last March when she brought down the budget. So everything's on track. But gosh, we have issues with housing. We have issues with inflation. So she's trying to set up that all is good. But if it isn't good, like it's not for many people, the government was jumping in to do some things. But, of course, they were going to spend an extra $28 billion than they had budgeted, but it'll be stretched out over five years. You won't really notice. Oh, and by the way, two years from now, the new deficit target will come into effect. So the deficit will never be more than 1% of the gross domestic product, and that would be $32 billion a year. So... And again, a lesson you learn really early in politics. For me, it was as an MP. I remember when we were elected back in 84, uh, deficits were really high. They were in that $40 billion range. And of course the government had a plan and, you know, two years from now, it'll be this three years, five years. Governments never hit their targets. I mean, it's just the way governing is, right? So, the biggest takeaway that I thought was a bit sad was in all of the projections, you know, the deficit's $40 billion this year, to service the debt, and I mentioned this yesterday, the accumulated debt, and that's adding up all the deficits from Johnny McDonald to the end of Stephen Harper, you were at about $680 billion dollars. Now, governments have actually paid down debt a little bit. Governments have had balanced budgets. Governments have had deficits. I mean, that's again 150 years of Canada. From 2018, the Prime Minister inherits 680 billion accumulated debt today, 1.2 trillion, nearly doubled. So that's significant. So the service of that debt, so in other words, just paying the interest is in that range of $44 billion, it will rise to over 50. In fact, it's closer to $60 billion. Uh, again, looking ahead in the next four or five years. But the saddest news was there is now no projected date where the deficit will be reduced to zero. Usually, at least governments hold out some hope. You know, six years from now, uh, the budget will be balanced. Yeah, you won't remember that. They didn't even try. So they project ahead six years, there will still be an annual shortfall or a deficit. But one of the... Uh, groups really pushing on the concern here uh, is obviously, you know, taxpayers federation organizations that wish the government just didn't spend so much money. But the McDonald Laurier Institute's Aaron Woodrick, who actually came up through the taxpayers federation world, Aaron writes in the national post that one of the answers that Krisha Freeland had in her midterm or fall financial update is really an assault on property rights in Canada. Now, I hasten to add, and I know some of you are talking to the radio now, we don't have property rights in Canada. In 1980 to 82, when we were writing, repatriating the Constitution for the UK and drafting a charter of rights, property rights were debated. They went around and around But the premiers and the prime minister of the day, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, said no express property rights would be enshrined in the Constitution, which really tells you all you need to know about Canada. Because you let politicians write the Constitution, their fear was that if you captured in a charter or a bill of rights some inalienable rights to your property, government might have trouble expropriating it. Government might have trouble telling you what to do on your property. Hence, it never happened. But in conventional expression, so again, I always jump in, you know, you don't have a property right, but you do. I mean, you've got a right to do certain things, as you know. I mean, you've bought the property, it's yours, subject to paying your city taxes and all else. You at least have some ability to make decisions. Well in the finance department they actually believe and this is wishful thinking at its best that every airbnb or vrbo that's rented out on a short term basis you know you've got an apartment you've got you know a condo you kept when you bought your new house maybe you even have a chunk of your house that you live in that you airbnb part of your house out every single airbnb if you didn't rent it short-term, and this is Aaron, uh, the expression that Aaron Woodrick writes, would be magically transformed into long-term rentals. You see? If you don't have short-term rentals, people could live there. And that's actually what Christian Freeland said in the fall economic update. So the government of Canada is actually trying to discourage Airbnb and VRBO, particularly in the cities that have already moved to regulate it to the point that it's virtually non-existent, Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. So the government of Canada is going to prevent you from claiming as an expense on your income tax any of the costs-related costs related In fact, including mortgage interest, if it's an investment property, expenses that went to run the property you used for VRBO or Airbnb. So Aaron Woodrick with the McDonald Laurie Institute says this is an assault on homeowners. The flexibility that things like uh, Airbnb and VRBO have is essential to people who don't want to be full-time landlords. And in addition... You might have people who come and go from that property. Your folks might come in for a few months a year. You might have kids who are transitioning to school or back. Intermittently, you've got friends or family who need housing. So they're using the housing, but when you aren't, then you put it up on Airbnb. Cities, of course, hate this because, of course, cities love to regulate things. But Aaron Woodrick writes that dictating how citizens use their own property raises serious concerns about the government overstepping its bounds. In a country with well-established property rights, and he argues, again, it's not in the Constitution, but the courts have been, you know, they've laid out some certain things you can do. With well-established rights, it is inappropriate and misguided for the government to meddle in the choices your family might make about renting out your property. And one of the reasons you make those choices is to make ends meet. So one of the reasons that families are using uh, short-term rentals is that's how they're paying the bills. So this is part of Krisha Freeland's proposal two days ago. And I, and I thought I was the only one when I looked at this that raised an eyebrow. And I mean, there's 15000000000 billion they're going to go for low-interest financing and loans through CMHC to build apartments and things. Okay, that'll help. But this idea that you'll attack people who own short-term rental properties? 877 332 And James in Saskatoon, uh, what do you think on the whole question of housing costs and where the federal government sees itself?
2: you know i was utterly surprised that with an uh the issue of housing that is such an urgent and pres- present issue that the best the federal government could do with Christian freeland's uh, latest uh uh summary uh, update is to to have nothing that takes effect for at least 2 years yeah you know and 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 it's just absolutely so what would we do if we ever really needed our government to step in? And, and there's, it's almost like they, they don't even want to try and, and, and work towards uh, some of the factors that are, are causing the housing issues, right? We know, we know that we have huge immigration levels and immigration is a necessity for, for us to be sure. But does everything have to be focused in on the GTA? and And the Vancouver area
0: you yeah know. you can 't i mean you okay we we 've all agreed, and I think universally, I mean, look at Canada, certainly since the 1960s we grow by immigration, but exactly. one million new people last year, you know you take you know four what close to four hundred and twenty four hundred and thirty thousand 430,000 uh, straight in. Permanent residents go to citizenship, then layer on top of that 340,000 students, then bring temporary foreign workers. One million new people arrived on our shores last year. That's got some implications if you're trying to look at housing.
2: Exactly, and then that's the issue, right? If housing is seeing the cracks and the pressures, what is the other infrastructure items such as doctors, education, um, all the other aspects of, of our everyday existence that we 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 look at for how we introduce people to our society, and and so once again, it's just one of these things where I feel that our government is talking uh, out of the side of its mouth. It, it really has very false hopes, and uh, and I'm I'm left uh, dismayed. But anyway,s John, I just wanted to jump in. It's uh, another opportunity for you and I to kind of bemused uh, the latest antics, and and I really appreciate our, our to-and-fro, and, fro and I, I, I'll miss you, my friend.
0: Well, thank you very much, and I'll miss you. I miss, you know, it was funny. Uh, people were saying, well, you know, how are you feeling about, uh, look at the decision I made, perfect decision. I mean, I'm, you know, okay, I said this to a friend the other day, and he actually laughed, so maybe it's a good line. I could do this show for the rest of my life. But it's the rest of my life, right? There's a point in which your life, you have to say, I want the flexibility. I want to be able to do all this stuff. So I'm completely reconciled. What's getting me emotionally, and you might, I'll get through tomorrow, is the relationship with the listeners. You are absolutely astonishing people. And you have made my life better by being in it. And to the extent I will get verklempt, it'll be because I'm going to miss you. I make no bones about that. Uh, Kelly and Regina, I own three Airbnb properties in lake communities. When the federal government decides to tell me what I can and I can't do with my own property, I can't explain what I might do. <laughs> Where immigrants choose to live in Canada is not my problem. I didn't do anything. Yep. Think about that just at a fundamental level. The way Kelly makes some money and feeds his family is his Airbnbs. So Krisha Freeland will dictate how you live? How could they do that carbon tag? Okay. Government's doing it to us anyway. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.
2: I heard a voice inside say, she ain't pretty she just looks that way.
0: <laughs> I had a story here for Bugs Day the Hour of Rage that I never even got to Uh, headline CTV Laura Woodward wrote this great piece bus riders are not stupid colon Saskatoon bus rider group finds city ad condescending insulting so the city puts an online ad out it shows a guy you know smartphone cup of coffee looks like he's rushing somewhere got a flexible schedule consider taking an earlier or later bus that might be less crowded Saskatoon transit so Bob Clipperton, oh my goodness, one of my old political nemesis from the Battlefords days, big NDP activist. Uh, he's a member of the bus riders of Saskatoon. I found that ad condescending. It's as if the riders are being blamed for the difficulties transit is going through. <laughs> Another guy rides the bus about 15 times a week. He says the ad blames transit issues on riders and is pushing people away. Don't think the ad got a flexible schedule. Consider taking an earlier or later bus that might be less crowded. They're simply saying, look to avoid crowds. Uh, is Saskatoon's transit system working? Nope. Are many, many, many buses going to break down this winter? Yep. Is the city obsessed with bus rapid transit, which is going to cost them about three times what they budgeted? It'll be closer to 400 million than 120 million. Yep. Has the city lost its way on so many issues? Yep. But all they're doing is simply just urging bus riders, you know, if you've got a little time, plan ahead. Remember, I said earlier the infantilization of society where, you know, everybody runs around feeling hurt all the time? (laughs) What are you, bunch of victims, you bus riders of Saskatoon? Uh, This this is actually a thing. Uh, Serena Gersher, who got herself to be a city councillor, for God's sake, she was a bus rider of Saskatoon, too. I mean, next to the cyclists, the bus riders are uh, quite a group. I wish you well, and I hope your buses don't break down. At least not the bus you're on. It's important. This is 650 CKOM and 980 CJME.